it seems that the epidemiology of the PIMS, or this new uh, uh, disease that we're seeing, uh, is a little bit different than from the Kawasaki. So, for example, one thing that is quite striking and interesting is that this increase in cases has not been reported in Asia. It's been reported in France and UK, and now here we think we're starting to see those cases, but um, not in Asia. That's Dr. Marie-Paul Morin, a pediatric rheumatologist at St. Justine University Hospital in Montreal. She's a clinical assistant professor at Montreal University. She's our guest on this special COVID-19 series of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis. In Canada and around the world, the numbers of cases and deaths caused by the COVID-19 pandemic is continuing to rise. Among the confirmed cases, only around 6% have been recorded in patients under 19 years old. Pediatric patients were not, initially, felt to be the main target of the virus. However, a correspondence published in The Lancet on May 6th outlined a hyperinflammatory shock syndrome in eight children in the UK felt to be related to the virus. Since then, more reports have been published describing unusual pediatric syndromes potentially linked to the virus. Symptoms very similar to Kawasaki disease have also been reported. Dozens of cases like this have emerged in Toronto and Montreal and elsewhere. For more on this evolving issue, let's go to Dr. Marie-Paul Morin. Marie-Paul, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Our pleasure. So to begin, can you give us a description of the sorts of symptoms that these patients are actually experiencing? So it's quite um, like a, there's a continuum of symptoms they can uh, experience. Uh, some of those patients, they look more like um, Kawasaki disease. So uh, like Kawasaki disease is a fever for uh, more than five days. And uh, with kids who have like a rash and they can have conjunctivitis, um, they can have uh, um, adenopathy, um, they can have involvement of the mouth uh, with cracked lips, and they can have also uh, symptoms of their hands and feet, so swollen or a rash. So a certain proportion of the kids that we're seeing uh, fulfill the criteria for Kawasaki disease, either completely or just um, uh, partially. Some of the kids, they look more like toxic shock syndrome. So really with hypotension, they can have a rash too and a multisystemic uh, involvement. And um, on the other end of the continuum, I could say, uh, some of the kids look more like an, a really a hyperinflammatory syndrome with really, uh, again, either cardiac involvement and very, very high uh, inflammatory markers. So those would be mainly the, the different symptoms that uh, we, can, we can see. So you've described kind of three somewhat distinct but overlapping subtypes. Yes. And, and how is it established that these are associated with COVID in particular, if you see these in pediatric patients anyways? Um, we suspect it's uh, post-infectious inflammatory symptoms because there's a clear temporal association of uh, those cases with the COVID-19 pandemic. So for example, in the first countries who reported those cases, so an increasing uh, patient with this, um, we actually we call them pediatric inflammatory multisystem syndrome or PIMS. And so this encompasses the uh, the different um, clinical presentation I discuss, and so um, the f the uh, the temporal association has been noted in countries like France or UK. Uh, but for example, in France, uh, they had a peak 
of the number of those cases or those kids admitted to a hospital about four weeks after the peak of the COVID epidemic. And that's uh, more or less what we are seeing here too. So uh, a little bit after the peak of the, the pandemic. We're not sure if there's a causal relationship, and so that's to be studied. Um, but as I said, we think it's more uh, likely to be like a post-infection inflammatory syndrome, also because most of those kids don't have positive PCR. So there's no evidence of uh, active viral replication. But a lot of those kids have um, <clears throat> positive IgG antibodies, um, which uh, which are suggestive of a previous infection. So those are the I would say the main uh, hypothesis for for the moment. I, I think that that's interesting that you point that out. That initial Lancet paper um, on my read initially all eight patients were negative, and then in follow up, as per the paper, only two were were positive by PCR, I believe. I wondered how they were able to actually come up with the precise link to COVID. And, and it sounds like the temporal relationship is an important marker there. Are there differences between what's being described in the literature, obviously still evolving, and the Montreal experience? Yes, our cases here, um, well, in the literature, one thing that is striking is that a lot of those kids have GI symptoms. And that's not a feature we usually see with Kawasaki disease. Like we can see that, but it's not something that's really like a, uh, a major feature. And a lot of those kids in the uh, first Lancet study and also in the subsequent studies, uh, well, those are observan observational studies. So there's one uh, cohort of 10 patients from uh, Bergamo in Italy that's been published also in The Lancet. And there's also like, uh, there's a French cohort from Necker Hospital that's uh, in preprint, but um, it's, uh, they're, they're described too. So um, the kids from those three observa observational studies had uh, a lot of GI symptoms. And here in Montreal, we didn't see that often. Uh, the other thing is that the kids that we're seeing uh, they don't appear to be as severe as the cases that uh, have been described. So we only had two cases, well, I, I should say two suspected cases, because we're still not sure, if, as I said, if there's a link or a correlation um, that went to the uh, ICU. Is there a clear link that you have identified or that is available in the literature between the pathophysiology of COVID that overlaps with the hyperinflammatory symptoms that are similar, COVID, sepsis, HLH, like all the things under the PIMS umbrella. Do we have a reason why COVID is, is setting these off in particular? No, not that I'm aware of. And I think that here we're dealing with probably something different than what we're seeing in the adults, where they have this hyperinflammatory syndrome uh, while they have the active infection with the COVID. And here, the kids seem to have possibly had the infection, but now it's kind of resolving, as I said. So this is really something very interesting and in that we're um, going to study more. So uh, pointing to the adult literature, I think there's obviously a huge push to figure out what the appropriate treatment is. How are you treating 
these young patients? So I'd say it really depends on the clinical picture. If they fulfill the criteria of the Kawasaki, then we're just treating as uh, Kawasaki disease. So with IVIG and uh, aspirin, so that's the mainstay of the treatment. Um, in Kawasaki disease, we can use steroids, and it appears in the different studies that those kids need a little bit more of steroids than what we usually are, are giving, either because they're more severe again. Um, it seems that they present more with shock-like uh, symptoms or with macrophage activation syndrome also. If the cases look more like the toxic shock syndrome, then IVIG could be used. And if there's like really this hyperinflammatory or cytokine storm, um, I am aware of uh, the use of either anakinra or uh, tocilizumab, but um, I do not have like a personal experience with um, those medications, but I, I know that they've been used uh, for uh, the treatment of those kids. Okay, that's interesting. I think there was certainly an early emphasis on uh, trying to figure out if tocilizumab was a, was an effective agent for adult patients. Yes. Maybe maybe some evidence in in these pediatric patients as well. Is there any clue in the literature as to why it's happening to some children and not others? I think we can assume many children are exposed to the virus. Why are some of them? developing these unusual symptoms? Um, that's, again, an excellent question. I'd say it seems that the epidemiology of the PIMS, or this new uh, uh, disease that we're seeing, uh, is a little bit different than from the Kawasaki. So, for example, one thing that is quite striking and interesting is that this increase in cases has not been reported in Asia. It's been reported in France and UK, and now here we think we're starting to see those cases, but um, not in Asia. Um, one other thing is that usually Kawasaki disease is more uh, has a, a preponderance in Asian kids, and here we we don't see that. We see some of the this, the observational studies that it was more uh, Afro uh, American. Uh, dissonance uh, kids, though it seems a little bit different. But otherwise than that, we do not have clues to like um, what could start this disease in some uh, in some uh, kids. And again, the other thing is that um, most of those kids had no comorbidities. And so they were like normal kids with no health problem. So that's definitely something we're going to study. Is it fair to say that this is still a rare phenomenon in pediatric patients? This is not something that you're admitting constantly to hospital. No, it's 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 still very rare. I saw some numbers in different studies, like maybe zero point one percent. Well, this is still to be determined, but uh, it's a very rare complication. And again, we're still not sure if there's a true link or causality with the the COVID nineteen. What do you think we need to worry about going forward with this group of patients? Is it the concerns are by phenotype? So if you had a Kawasaki's presentation, you worry about the same coronary artery aneurysm disease going forward? Or are there other considerations that, that you're worried about in the future for these kids affected by the, the PIMS group of diseases? Yeah, that's a hard question to answer because this disease has been described only six to seven weeks ago. So in terms of long-term follow-up, we we don't have yet. 
But it looks like there's a there's a difference when they first present, uh, as I say, in terms of maybe more severe presentation, shock, uh, macrophage activation syndrome. So those signs we need to be very aware of. Also, maybe a little bit more of uh, myocardial involvement. So usually in Kawasaki, we can see the um, aneurysm. Um, we can see the myocarditis, but it seems to be a little bit more preponderant in those kids. In terms of long-term follow-up, we'll see. For the moment, we don't know is there any uh, ongoing effect on the arts or um, that has to be followed. If we do bump into these cases, uh, is there any registries that we should be trying to contact or enroll patients in or how do we uh, kind of contribute to the ongoing study of this? So there are different registries in Canada. We have the surveillance program uh, from the Canadian Pediatric um, Society, so the CPSP. Um, so that's one program that uh, you can uh, enroll a patient or uh, declare uh, cases that uh, you've seen. And they actually have uh, criteria that have been established in terms of uh, diagnostic. You know, I, I do adult rheumatology out here, but if the overlap of patients may be a bit older in the patients experiencing Kawasaki disease in the available literature, maybe even the adult rheumatologist should be paying attention and looking out for any syndromes that look unusually like what we recall being taught by our pediatric rheumatology teachers for Kawasaki or, or similar? Yeah, certainly. The CDC criteria, for example, um, they state that it's a multi-system inflammatory syndrome um, in, I would not say kids, but a person below 21 years of age. So, and some, wow. the WHO, it's uh, below 19 years of age. So, like they're, they're including a little bit older kids or, or adult, I would say. Um, so certainly that's something to be uh, aware of. And um, definitely we in the different like observational studies, um, they're showing that the kids are a little bit more older than the kids we're seeing with uh, Kawasaki disease. So usually we see kids more below five years of age. And uh, there are uh, cases describe older kids. So, so even a adult rheumatologist, we all have to stay vigilant too. Mary Paul, are there any specific criteria we should be using to define these cases? So there are different uh, societies who uh, establish criteria. So the WHO, for example, the CDC. Uh, the one we're using are the one from the CPSP, so the Canadian Pediatric Surveillance Program. Um, and so they talk about any new patient less than 18 years of age um, uh, who meets the following case definition. So they had to be hospitalized uh, with a pediatric uh, inflammatory multi-syndrome, multi-system syndrome, so the PIMS, or Kawasaki that appears to be um, temporarily associated with the COVID-19. And so they define it as a persistent fever. And so they uh, are talking about three days of fever or more and elevated uh, inflammatory markers, so either CRP or ESR or ferritin. And they have to have one or both of the following. So either features of Kawasaki disease that could be complete or incomplete or toxic shock syndrome um, that could be typical or atypical. And obviously, no alternative etiology to explain the clinical presentation. One thing that is uh, important to note is that patients should be re reported regardless of uh, the SARS-CoV-2 status. 
Um, so those are criteria that I find useful also to uh, kind of visualize what kind of um, uh, what's the spectrum of the disease I was talking about. And the temporal relationship that you mentioned there, temporal to the testing positive for COVID or temporal to a syndrome that sounds like it could have been COVID, like upper respiratory tract infection, diarrheal illness? No, actually, most of the kids that are uh, diagnosed with PIMS had no symptoms of the COVID. So when they talk about temporally associated, it's more about um, epidemic or a pandemia that is uh, occurring. Oh, that we are in a pandemic. Yes. That's yes. the temporal yes. relationship. Yes. So, so that means that it's a pretty wide net. Basically, most children or, or all children presenting with the syndromes you've described should probably be considered for entry or referral to the uh, to the cohort. At, at least consider for sure, or and the clinician okay. should consider this disease in the differential diagnosis. That's really interesting. It makes things so challenging for you guys. Mary Paul, thank you so much for chatting with us and being on the podcast today. Thanks to you, Daniel. That's it for this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. We are produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, Kevin Bagenoth, and Aaron Fontwell. We would like to give a special thanks to Dr. Dania Basudan for her generous help with the background research for this episode. We would also like to thank the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for all their hard work. We are supported by funding from Scotiabank, the Canadian Medical Association, and MD Financial Management. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.